You're listening to the podcast of King's Cross Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. My name's Chip. I'm one of the pastors here. We are back for another Q&A podcast that is going to wrap up chapter three of the story. We are in a sermon series. It's taken us all the way through the Bible's overarching story for the whole year. We've divided that series up into 10 chapters, and what we are trying to do is at the end of every chapter, we take some questions that people have asked, uh, and we try to answer them in this podcast format so that uh, more people can hear them. We're about a week late on this because, as it turns out, it's hard to schedule four people to get together for a podcast, but uh, we are thankful to be here, and hopefully we can knock some of these out. I am joined by my good friend, Megan Parton. Hello, Megan. What's up? How are y'all? And our good friend, Josh. Hello, Josh. How are you? I'm doing great. Good to be here. Awesome. If you do not know them, Megan is our discipleship coordinator here at King's Cross. Josh is also one of the pastors, and so we are going to jump right in uh, and start tackling some questions. And Josh, I'm going to start with you. We got an email from somebody, and if you have, uh, by the way, if you have a question that you want to send to us, you can email the story at kingscross.org. Uh, and maybe we will uh, grab your question and put it on our Chapter 4 podcast coming up in a few weeks. But Josh, we got this uh, email question. It said, as I'm reading more and more of the Bible, I keep seeing the same numbers. The past week, the number 40 stood out to me. What is the significance of the number 40? Noah is on the ark. There's 40 days on Mount Sinai for Moses, 40 years of wandering the desert. Thanks for your help. All right, so thank you for giving me the opportunity to start it off. So there's not only these few instances where we see the number 40, but there's several others. And so um, after Moses killed the Egyptian, he went to Midian where he spent 40 years in the desert tending mm. flocks. And then he's on Mount Sinai, as indicated, 40 days and 40 nights. We see he intercedes on Israel's behalf later, 40 days, 40 nights. The Israelite spies took 40 days to spy out Canaan. Uh, the Israelites wandered for 40 years. Mm. Before Samson's deliverance, Israel served the Philistines for 40 years. Uh, Goliath taunted Saul's army for 40 days before David showed up. Uh, we see um, Joseph, Jonah prophesied that in 40 days Nineveh would be overthrown. Then this is kind of interesting. Three kings reigned for 40 years each. We see Saul, David, and Solomon. Mm. And then in the New Testament, Jesus was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. And then there were 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. And so when you look at a lot of these, uh, what I'm seeing is the number 40 uh, indicates a, time, a theme of testing and judgment. Mm. And so what makes me think of now in modern days, 40 the age 40 has become the midlife crisis. <laughs> Great. It's a testing of... Uh, <laughs> Testing and judgment, maybe. But now, <laughs> now that I'm, so it's uh, only up from here. Yeah, right? but now that I'm 49 and 50 is the new 40, so maybe I'm about to enter into that. Yeah. I don't know. So the number uh, 40 may be symbolic, uh, but I think one thing that we need to remind ourselves is that when the Bible says 40, the Bible means 40. So it's also literal. So we we really are talking about 40 days or 40 years. Um, but there could be something that God is doing during a period of time to where he says 40 is a complete number symbolically for a time of testing and judgment. And so I don't think that the number 40, because it shows up so often in the scriptures, is a coincidence. I think there may be something there that uh, God is doing and behind the scenes. And I think what is really 
uh, interesting to me and hits home with me is not to focus on the number 40, but really to focus on what God is doing. And so mm -hmm. each time we read one of these historical events and we see the number 40, yes, that is interesting, but I think it really just communicates that God is sovereign even over time and that God is doing a work during this time. So if it is a time of testing and judgment, it's a time of testing and judgment so that God can get for his people to a time of grace and mercy and love. And so mm -hmm. looking and seeing what is his overarching plan during this period to get to a place of restoration for his people. That's good. Yeah, I think that's really good. I think um, it's clear that nothing God does is by accident. And we know that uh, not just with uh, the number 40, but with other themes in the Bible, when you see them repeated again and again and again, they're kind of signposts. Right, yeah. that, that call our attention to say, That's hey, good. pay attention to this. Something is happening here. And there are places in the scripture where numbers are intentionally meant to be symbolic. For example, if you're in some apocalyptic literature and you encounter things like the number 1,000 or the number 7 or the number 12, but that's a specific type of literature, which is really not the type of literature we've been in to this point in the story, we've largely been in narrative. Right, right. It's right. just a historical Exodus description mm -hmm. of things that have happened. And the examples you cite um, here uh, that you did just a second ago are, are great ones because they're also that none of the things you said are apocalyptic literature. Mm -hmm. It's all just regular. So I think there, I think you're right. There's just something that the Lord does in 40 day periods. Uh, I think or 40 years or 40 years. Yeah, yeah. I think you're exactly right to align that with testing and judgment. And I, I think you're right that ultimately it points us to uh, Jesus who overcame his 40 day test yeah. in the wilderness. Right. And Jesus who walked the earth for 40 days after his resurrection, proving that there's a way that we can overcome judgment. That's really good. Yeah, so I think great. God's preparing his people for those two exact things. Yeah, really, now that I think about it, maybe all the stuff that happens in the Old Testament is 100%. just to say, this is the guy. That's right. So, so where cool. if you may have failed your 40-day test, he didn't. You may have come under 40 mm. years of judgment, but you can escape judgment because he's demonstrated. I, I think that surely that's what, what God was preparing that's our good. hearts for. That's good. That's good. Okay, is there another one? Yes, there is. So I want to ask you about Jethro. So this is Moses's father-in-law. We see that in Exodus 18, he's having a conversation with Moses, and Moses is telling him about all the really cool things that God's been doing. And in 18, verse 11 of Exodus, Jethro says, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. So the question that was presented to us is, was Jethro a believer? I love mm. this question. As we look at Exodus 18. It's good, because what we're told about uh, what we're told about Jethro is that he was a priest of Midian, um, and uh, he comes and meets Moses. It wasn't the first time he'd met Moses during those 40 years when Moses was uh, in between his first stint in Egypt and his second. He was in Midian, mm. and he was working for Jethro. So they, they have a history there. Um, and so I think that there are... Uh, a variety of opinions on this for people who know the scriptures, love the Lord, uh, can just have a different uh, opinion about how to uh, interpret it. And so um, what we know is that by the end of Exodus 18, Jethro 
knows, in his own words, that Yahweh is the true God. And so the question is, well, um, how did he get there? Uh, some people would say, well, Jethro, because he's a descendant of Abraham, um, kind of continued the traditions of his ancestors. And so um, he uh, is kind of following along in the line of Abraham, uh, if you will, and the Israelite tradition overlapped this kind of historical Abrahamic tradition. And so he is declaring something there that uh, surely these things that he always thought now have been proven true. Um, others think that maybe Jethro was converted, but um, not necessarily to uh, monotheism, uh, but to something that scholars sometimes call um, monolatry, meaning that that maybe Jethro believed there were many gods, but Yahweh was the greatest hmm. of them. Um, and so uh, I, I don't really uh, fall into that camp, but there are some, and they would say, hey, it's kind of like the sailors who were on the boat with Jonah. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, now we know your God is the, is the greatest. Um, others see a genuine conversion here and a, and a profession of faith that now he has come to a place where he has personally experienced um, the acts of this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh. And now he is, uh, goes on to make a sacrifice uh, later on in the chapter uh, and so what I would say is, is Jethro a believer by the end of Exodus 18? And I would say, yes, mm-hmm. I, I think that he is. If you wanted to arc into what was the strength of that faith, you know, should Jethro be in the Hebrews 11 uh, Hall of Fame of Faith? Was it clearly monotheistic? I, I think if you want to start to get into some interpretations of Jethro's faith, that maybe we would have to read more into the text than what's there. Yeah. So, so one thought I have is, you know, you can't really just take a few sentences and say, okay, well, he's definitely a believer or he's not a believer. Just like you can't say, somebody says, well, I go to church. Well, that doesn't necessarily tell me whether or not you're a Christian Mm. or if, um, I, you know, believe a certain doctrine or if just because I say that I am a Christian, that doesn't necessarily mean that you are. Yep. But when you just look at the passage, it could be in verse 11, I know now that God is the Lord is greater than all the gods. Maybe he intellectually became a Christian then or a believer, I say a Christian, but a believer mm-hmm. in the Lord. And then in verse 12 where he makes the sacrifice, mm-hmm. maybe that's actually where his relationship with the Lord began. Could be. Could be. Mm-hmm. And I do think as you get toward the end of the chapter when he starts giving Moses some really sound advice, yeah. now obey my voice, I'll give you advice, God be with you. Verse 19, you represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. If you do this in verse 23, God will direct you. Maybe there is some kind of evidence that he really does have a relationship Seems that way, Lord. doesn't it? I, I had a couple interesting takeaways too, and, and I enjoyed when we talked about this in staff meeting a few weeks ago. I think the first is that Regardless of the strength of Jethro's faith, it's clear that um, what God has done in freeing the people from Egypt was a huge eye-opening experience for Jethro. Mm. Like He keeps talking about because God rescued the Israelites from Egypt, because of what he did for Egypt, now I'm, I see that your God is better than all gods. So um, actively remembering, like the testimony of God's actions, you know, um, helps helps people's faith really grow. I mean, not to jump ahead too much, but I read that 
in Rahab uh, in her story this morning too. It was the same thing, this theme of I've heard about what Yahweh has done for his people and it's either made me interested and now I want to fully trust God or if the, if he already trusted God, strengthen his faith even more. And then the second thing that I love about this chapter is Moses's humility because let's say Jethro was um, a new believer or someone who's growing in his faith. I mean, we know that Moses's testimony is he's the the you know a man that knew God face to face, which blows my mind every time I read it that he knew God face to face. I'm like, what? And so the man who knew God face to face was willing to take advice um, mm, from someone that may have been, you know, a little bit uh, newer at this faith thing, you know. And yeah. so I just think it's cool to see Moses's humility, and it's convicting for me too. Of you know, a new believer or someone that's growing in their faith, am I willing to to sit back and listen to the Holy Spirit speak through them in the same way? So that's good. It makes thoughts. me it, it, my that first. Um, point you made it makes me think you know job says something similar right before i had heard but now my eyes have seen yeah um in john 4 the woman at the well goes back and says come meet this man who's told me everything that has ever happened to me uh and then later on they say uh before this was because of yours but now we know mm-hmm. and so um yeah that's a good encouragement it's to evangelism to testimony. And to yeah. testimony there that you don't know how you just sharing what God has done in your life or the lives of people you know may impact somebody someone else's else. faith. Yeah. That's really good. That's really good. Megan, you have one? I have one. Um, and let's see. It is one that I can answer if that's cool. Oh, I was so, supposed to ask you. No, it's okay. I? It's okay. This is this is fun. So I made the plan. Is I'm it okay <laughs> to lie for good reasons? And we're not just throwing that out there without giving you a reason. Um, yeah. Some of where we're coming from here is Exodus 1 where we talk about, uh, where the Bible talks about the midwives and the ways that they uh, lied to Pharaoh and the Egyptian officials. Um, and then we'll see this later in, in the Bible and a few other passages as well. So, Right, so j- just the background there, if people yeah. are, I miss it. Pharaoh says to the, uh, the Israelites are growing in number. Yep. And they are now so many of them that the Egyptians are afraid, basically, that the Israelites are going to overthrow them. And um, in the early parts there of Exodus, as you said, Pharaoh issues this order that the Israelite midwives are to kill all of the male babies that are born. Mm-hmm. And what they come back, the midwives come back and say, well, these Israelite women are so hardy. They give birth to their children so quickly. We can't even get there in time to kill the babies. Yep. And the question is, is that okay to lie because it seems like a pretty good reason? Well, and I think the biggest takeaway uh, to kind of start here is in verse 17 where it says, The midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. Mm. Um, And the reason why I point that out is because obviously the Bible makes it clear that it's, it's a sin to lie. Um, but the point of these verses is, is not that they, that they lied, but that the Israelites and these midwives feared God more than they feared Pharaoh and not to sidetrack us too much here, but I I talked about this, uh, JB and I talked about this with the students last month and it's just baffling to me 
that Pharaoh had this massive people group in his country that actually could have helped him, but because of fear, he created this problem that didn't exist and decided to oppress them, put them in slavery. I mean, just when we let fear run wild like that, like the things that we come up with is crazy, and that's what we see in Exodus 1. But the midwives chose to, one, trust God more than the things that feared I mean, I can't imagine how frightening it would have been to bring new life into the into the world then in this time. Yeah. Um, but the midwives chose to fear God rather than the circumstances or not even real circumstances like Pharaoh was creating around them. So um, they knew that even though lying was wrong, killing people was obviously a much larger and evil atrocity. And I think there are times where in culture, when it's really oppressive and something evil like this, like, I mean, it's... Is genocide the right word to use here? Yeah, I, I mean, this genocide, like, I just found myself thinking of, um, which I was really encouraged when I saw this in Josh's notes as well. Um, I, I thought of Corey Ten Boom and her dad, right? And how oh, during sure. the Holocaust, um, they rescued, helped keep Jews in their, in their closet up above. And, and, you know, the story of the hiding place, if you're unfamiliar with that, you should read it because it's amazing. But um, they protected these Jews and they lied to Nazis and said, no, we don't have them here, you know. And, and I think that at the end of the day, God values human life. And obviously we don't want to lie. But in those sort of situations, I think that um, the injustice and evil is so steep that God wants us to fight for human life. And the other thing on the other flip side of it is um, I think that the midwives were really funny because they were like, oh, sorry, man, we just can't keep up with all these women <laughs> cranking them out. And I think it's funny, and maybe that's a little bit deceitful, but there's probably a real reality to that. Like, the Hebrews went from, like, 70 to, do you remember the yeah, exact like number? Two, they, two million. Two million in 400 years or something yeah. like that. Like, they probably couldn't make it to every single childbirth. Like, there was probably some truth to that as well, that they didn't make it to all of the births. They have so, some PAs and nurse practitioners. Right. So I don't know if I fully answered the question about is it okay to lie for good reasons, but I think at the end of the day, God saw that their hearts feared him most and that their motivations were to love and honor him and protect his people. And, um, you know, we don't just say lie, it's fine. But in those situations, their heart was to fear God rather than oppressive um, leaders who were really evil and really unjust. Right. The good reason for lying isn't... um, you know if you tell the truth, you'll get grounded. A hundred percent, yeah. It, it's not, well, if I tell the truth about my sales report, I won't get my quarterly bonus. That That's not a good reason. <laughs> right. right. Selfish versus selfless. That, that, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Are you loving God and are you loving people you right. know, in the moment? Which I feel like we could go back to that with so many different things is what's the motivation in your heart? Is the motivation in your heart to love, honor, and serve God and to fear God? Or is it you know, fear to use Pharaoh's example or self-preservation or, or whatever. And so I think from what I see in this passage, it's really clear that the midwife's goal was to love, honor, serve, and fear God. I think Christy and I were having this conversation one time just about protecting the house. And I'm so black and white. It's like, this is the right thing to do. This is the wrong thing to do. And she had concerns of whether or not I would actually lie on her behalf to protect and save her life. <laughs> and so I really started having, to, started having to wrestle with this. And what does the scripture say? And I came to the conclusion and thinking about Corey Tim Boom is that um, I will play by the rules of those who organize the game. Hmm. And so if someone's coming at me to do harm to me, meaning they're coming to me to kill me or to kill my family, 
then, okay, you want to play by those rules? I'll play by those rules. And if it means that I have to get down on their level for a moment to do the greater good, then I will. So, hmm. Assuming the greater good's God. That's right. right. That's exactly right. <laughs> Just in case yeah. somebody's listening who doesn't know you well. Right. Right. You're not implying, for example, that, um, you know, if a group of your buddies came to you and said, hey, Josh, um, we're planning on uh, on getting high this weekend, you would say, well, they invited me. I guess I'll just have to. Yeah, that's not the greater good. Right. You're <laughs> that's right, not right, what right, I'm talking right. about. Yeah. If you ever that's, catch yeah. Josh smoking. Thing. That's right. <laughs> right. Thanks for clearing that the up. The world yeah. is ending if just, that happens. Well, not everybody that listens knows you per se. This will be, you know, let's yeah. just be clear. The five people that listen to this. That's right. Hey, I was, <laughs> no, I was super encouraged. <laughs> that our, my community group shout out to my community group i've had like two or three different people tell me that they love this podcast so that's awesome there's three of the five that, that's three of the five that's right it's my mom and josh's mom that's it <laughs> i don't all think right. they started listening until you joined us <laughs> that's not true that's right. um all right i got one okay okay shoot. um in staff meeting a few weeks ago uh we were talking about um the tabernacle and mm. the holy of holies and the tent of meeting and all of that fun stuff that you read in exodus and leviticus and um First of all, just like as a random side note, I think it's easy for us to just go off the assumptions of what people say rather than reading the word for ourselves. So we just hear, oh man, Leviticus is so boring. So then we don't read it. But the the last couple years I've read Leviticus really um, through a Bible reading plan and it's blown my mind how, much, really of, how much of God that I've seen through it and how much richer it made my understanding of the New Testament. And so if you haven't read Leviticus, you should get your face in it because it's really good. But one of the things that we talked about was um, was the the goat and the lamb and, and when they're sacrificed, just how bloody it gets in there. Sure. And one of the questions, I think it was actually Kristen that brought it up in staff meeting, was, hey, does the Holy of Holies get cleaned? Like when that happens? Because it's so detailed. Yeah. Because it has to be detailed, right? Because you are in the holiest place in the presence of God. And we also know that there were priests that were killed because they did some things wrong. So it's, it, it's so the Bible is so specific on how to do all of those things, but then it doesn't really say if the Holy of Holies ever gets cleaned. So yeah. what do you guys think? So the short answer is we don't know. Bible doesn't talk about it, right? Well, yeah. You're right. What we do know is that you had better not do anything anything at any time in the Holy of Holies that hasn't been explicitly prescribed by God. Yeah. Because if anybody did anything at any time in the Holy of Holies other than what God specifically said to do, they died instantly. Because it is uh, the representation of the place where the very presence of God dwelled. And where God dwells, there can be nothing unclean. Uh, everything is holy, and there can be nothing rebellious. Everything is obedient, etc. Um, so that's really clear. Um, I think what we also aren't told, though, um, for example, is um, did the candlesticks create smoke that left residue on the <laughs> curtains? Yeah. Were there, uh, this is a mobile tabernacle in the desert, right? Uh, it's got bread in it. Were there ants? Um, later in the temple, there's an altar that's gigantic. It's like probably about the size of my office for any of you who've ever been in my office. Um, maybe even a little bigger. Um, we're not given specific instructions on what to do with all the ash that's in it. And so, um, so 
We don't know. The tabernacle's portable at some point. Uh, you know, when God would move, they would tear it down and, and move and then re-erect it. Um, and so, I don't know. Um, I think maybe there's some assumptions we can make. Yeah. But explicitly, which is why I laughed about it in staff meeting when uh, whoever it was, ask it, ask it. Because um, I'd actually never stopped to think about that. Me neither. Well, this blood it just dries. Does it stay there forever? Does it, you know, but the Ark of the Covenant itself, which is in the Holy of Holies, was carried on poles, acacia poles. And so, um, you know, uh, I think we can make some assumptions, but it, it would just be assumptions yeah. that I would make. Josh. So I did a little reading yeah. in oh, some uh, Jewish literature, go. and I'm not making light of what I read. No, no. It's so good. It's this good. is uh, not making light at all. But I was really concerned about the guy that had this responsibility. So mm-hmm. I think it's in the temple. There was a hole in the ceiling. This is what was said. And they would lower a guy down mm-hmm. every once in a while. And without touching the floor, he mm-hmm. would clean. Oh, there you go. Like a Tom Cruise Mission Impossible sure. kind of thing. And I'm like man, I'd hate to be that guy Yeah, because that's some, like, there's some fear there. Sure there is. Yeah, <laughs> so big time. That's the yeah. rope you don't want to be pulled out. If you get pulled out, you want to still be alive. And yeah. So whether or not that's true or not, the Bible specifically doesn't speak to yeah. the cleaning of the temple. Although I will say, just as a side note, one of the things that's really, really helpful um, or can be really helpful in our understanding of um, what everyday life was like for Old Testament Israel and uh, New Testament Israel prior to uh, the formation of the church, a lot of those rabbinical writings, mm-hmm. uh, midrashes and things of this nature are really, really helpful for Christians yeah. Yeah. because they help us fill in gaps. And we know that those writings aren't inspired. And, and but it doesn't mean they're not true. That's right. But yeah. it doesn't yeah. mean it can't be helpful to paint some color and, and fill in some blanks for us. So right. uh, that's great. That's right. Keep going. I interrupt. But one thing that I've, or a few things that I've, pulled away from in thinking about this is whether or not the temple was cleansed is that um, how this applies to my life today in this thought process. And that is that the what the Bible does speak to is there is caring for a new kind of temple. And so we see in first Corinthians six 19, where Paul writes, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy spirit within you? Yeah, that's good. So we see in first John one seven, where it says the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. So we're thinking about the temple and well, doesn't the blood, um, contaminate the temple? Well, the temple of my body, the blood is what cleanses me. It's the blood of Jesus cleanses me from all sins, but it doesn't just stop there. Where is that in the sermon series? Uh, it's right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh my man, let's get on Why stage. Why you tell me that? That's pretty Leviticus, Josh. Yeah. Dang, that's good. Um, but in Jesus cleansed, His blood is good for all my past, present, and future sins. But practically and pragmatically speaking, God has given me a responsibility. Well, yeah. And I think about two passages: Luke eleven thirty four, where Jesus says, "Your eyes, the lamp of your body." When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, your body is full of darkness. So I'm responsible for the cleaning, cleanliness of my temple by making decisions on what enters my mind and enters my heart. Mm. And so that's how I keep the temple clean. And then I think of Excellent. 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16. But as God who has called you is holy, so also be holy in all of your conducts, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So it's not just, and I think there's a connection here, what I 
allow to come into my heart and mind will eventually come out through my actions. Yep. And so God is calling me to be holy, not only as what is in the inside, but also what comes out of my temple, which so is good. the body of the Holy Spirit. That's so, so good. There's a great illustration that some pastor used years ago that I saw in some video. I can't remember. Um, he had a glass of water. If y'all seen this, it's on a little table and he uh, knocks the glass over and all the water spills out on the table. And, um, and he says to the people who are there, why is there water on the table? You know, and they say, well, you know, cause you knocked the glass over, whatever they were shouting out. And he says, because that's what was in the glass when it got knocked over. Yeah. Oh, that's wow. Good. Yeah. And he said, what, what you put in eventually is going to spill out. Yeah. And so you have to watch what you put in your mind, what you put in your heart, what you put into your relationships. Cause eventually when things get rough, uh, that doesn't have anything to do with the Holy Holies. I'm so sure. That's, no, that's really good. good. It reminds <laughs> me of something my student pastor used to say growing up. He always says, when you get cut, what bleeds? That's right. You know, when you get cut, what bleeds out of you? That's right. And, uh, man, I think that's so good. I, it, it makes me, like, move to worship to think, man, these people used to have to set up camp, do all of these things, and then have someone go in for them to set up all these rituals and sacrifice this lamb. Then the lamb had to be sent out in the wilderness oh. and all of this stuff um, just to repent. But like we have direct access to God. We are literally a temple that the Holy Spirit dwells in and how much they probably longed for the reality that we have now is it should move our hearts to worship. Yeah, It is not too great a sacrifice to give up half of a Sunday morning. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and I, I'm not being snarky yeah. with that. I, no, I I'm with you. The, the idea of sacrifice as a com- critical component of worship matters. Yeah. yeah, matters. Okay, is there another question here that we should? Uh, I got one. Okay, because I remember you distinctly remember you talking about this in your sermon, and I thought it was a really powerful moment when you were preaching through Exodus 14, and um, there was a battle, and the Israelites were. Um, unable within themselves to be able to overcome. And in Exodus 14, 14, uh, Moses says, the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Mm-hmm. And I just remembered you saying, you only have to shut up, yeah. you know, and just let the Lord do so the work. So good. Y'all need to go listen to that sermon if you haven't. So my question is, how much, when we think about living the Christian life and overcoming temptation and fighting uh, through daily struggles, how much we do must we do to do our part? Do we work 100%? Does God work 100%? We just let go and let God. Do we meet God halfway? Like, what's the role? I see what happens mm-hmm. in Exodus 14. Mm-hmm. They just have to stand there and watch the Lord work. Well, how does that play out in my daily life? Sure, because that passage is in the context of the plagues and God freeing Israel. Um, so where my mind rushes, Josh, as it often does, my favorite passage in First uh, Corinthians 15, where Paul's giving his own testimony, and he says, I'm the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. Nonetheless, by God's grace, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. To the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, meaning any of the apostles. I worked harder than any of them still. It was not I, but the grace of God working in me. So then, whether it is I or they, so we preach and so you believe. That's 1 Corinthians 15. 15. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the... The paradigm that Paul sets up there, I believe, is he says, I recognize I'm unworthy of the grace of God, and yet I have received it. 
by the grace of God, I am what I am. I have certain gifts. I have certain talents. I have certain abilities. I have certain influence uh, in the different places that I might live, learn, work, or play. I have certain relationships with people. But by, by the grace of God, I, I am who I am and what I am, where I am, when I am, etc. And his response to the grace that he had received was, I'm going to work hard so that God's grace towards me is not in vain. Not to earn God's grace. Right. Mm -hmm. But because he's already received God's grace. And so he was working hard out of a sense of gratitude for what he already knew he possessed completely. Yeah. And he recognized that anything good that came out of that work was the work of the Holy Spirit, not him. Right. Yeah. Right? Because he says, to the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Still, it was not I, but the grace of God in me. And he recognizes if he didn't do it, somebody else would. Yep. Because <laughs> he says, still, whether it was I or they, so we preach it, so you Oh, believe. that's good. Yeah. Right? And so what I would say is that we work as Christians who live on this side of the cross. Our deliverance, our grace, our freedom in Christ has already been completed we have already received it. It is ours. So we now work in response to, we discipline ourselves in response to, we are transformed by the renewal of our minds in response to what we have already received. We, we flee from sin in response to the grace that we have already received. So I think the paradigm in Exodus 14, Moses is trying to teach Israel, you're not going to work for this freedom. Mm-hmm. You're not going to work to get out of this slavery. Mm -hmm. You aren't going to solve your problem. Yeah. Mm, which is the parallel to salvation. Salvation. You come to Christ. That's right. Yeah. Mm. So what Israel's, Israel had some work to do, but it was coming. Yeah. Right. Because they were going to receive the law in Exodus 19. And they were going to build the temple. We just talked about that, or the tabernacle. And they were going to be called to trust God, go into the land of Canaan. And they were going to be called, yep. called to pay for the the price of the natural consequence of their sin, wandering in the desert. All that work was coming, but it came after the deliverance and the freedom and the salvation that they had received. So too we, who are in Christ, work, and whatever that is, reconciliation, spiritual disciplines, loving our neighbor, worship, service, whatever it is, out of that place, recognizing in humility that the Holy Spirit works through us, and there isn't anything that God needs to accomplish that he couldn't just use somebody else for if he wanted to. Is that helpful? Yeah, that's yeah. really good. And what comes to my mind is, like, when Jesus is asked, what, what must we do to do the works of God in John 6, 29? He says, the work of God is this, that you believe in the one that he sent. That's right. And then I think about Colossians 2, 6. It says, therefore, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. How do you receive Christ Jesus as Lord? It's by faith. By faith. And so, and then you think of Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So I'm thinking that even after they were released from slavery, and that was just by believing and trusting, and then all this work that they had to do as they entered into the promised land, even though that was work, it was still work by faith. That's right. It was still yeah. work as they trusted in the Lord. That's right. And as we see now for us in Galatians 2.20, really the only way in which I'm able to have effective and successful work to be able to do it successfully 
is it's Christ doing it through me. That's right. Now I have the power of the Holy Spirit in me that can work out through me to be able to get God's will done. Yeah, because some, some of what I was going to say with this question, to go back to the verse specifically in Exodus 14, 14, is you touched on this earlier, Chip, is the importance of context and the way that the book was written. So one, um, this is a narrative. So some of this, you know, pretty much all of this we can assume is, is literal. It's literal stuff. It's mm-hmm. not arbitrary. Yeah, it's history. And it's a historical retelling of things that really happened. And I think this is one of these verses we want to put on a throw pillow or like paint on a canvas, right? And I think one of our biggest um, things that we really need to work on um, in the church, and I'm including myself in this too, is to really understand our Bible and the verses that we say to people. Um, because I think we can really mishandle the Word of God with what it actually means. And, and I don't, I don't want to do that. And so um, understanding what this verse really means, what's before and around it. So if we look at what's before it, um, they are just getting out of Egypt and they're about to go to the Red Sea. They turn around and see Egyptians behind them. Right. Okay. And God's like, they immediately they start grumbling, which we know is like the sin that the Israelites really f- take part in quite frequently. <laughs> it's their favorite sin. It's their favorite sin. Grumble. And so some of it Luckily, is like, Megan, no Christian. I never struggle with that ever. With that now. Yeah. Right. But no I think, today. so I think some of it is just to go back to your point about it being literal. It's literal. Like yeah. God's like, you need to be silent. Yeah. I'm going to take care of this. I just delivered you from slavery. I know you see these people on your heels, but just be quiet. Yeah. You know, and they so had to see in front of them. Which is why yeah. you talked about the the shut up, which is in your sermon. So I won't yeah. re-preach that. But then the other thing is, um, or reteach it, I guess I should say. But um, the other thing is, um, I just totally lost my train of thought. Um, they had to walk forward. That's right. So there was action involved. It wasn't like this cute thing, the Lord will fight for you, you know, like you talked about in your sermon. They actually had to walk through the Red Sea. Like that was an action. So they had this truth about their faith um, to believe and accept, but they also had to move forward in action as well. And and where where we see that they, the lesson that they did not learn that I think we have to be cautious of today is those same adults Weeks later, not years yet, weeks later, are on are sent in to spy out the land for them to go in, and they come back and say, we can't do it. Yeah. The cities are too big. The people are too big. It's too fortified. They had just overcome or seen defeated the greatest army in the world. And in a matter of weeks, months, that they... they you know, because they spend four days around Mount Sinai. So, you know, they, they get into the land and they have completely lost all context for what God just did. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. now they're afraid again. Um, and I think sometimes uh, for us too, now we're away from work and more and more into faith. But I think sometimes for us too, we, we lose what God did six weeks ago, six years ago. And all we're thinking about is the situation we're in right now. We get overwhelmed. Yep. It's fear and control, right? I mean, that's so much of what we've seen today is Pharaoh was so fearful that that's why he wanted to have this genocide. You know, the Israelites right. the Israelites were so fearful about their time in the wilderness that they, you know, or they missed the control that they had, it, which is just laughable that they felt like they had had it made in Egypt so in slavery. Um, so so much of these, these retellings, I feel like, go back to fear and control. 
That's good. And how much of myself I see in that too. It's been very convicting. That's good. Any other pressing questions we want to get to? We've we've gone about forty minutes, so maybe we have time for one more. If you oh, have no, you got to stop at forty. Oh, that's, that's so right. Good. Oh my gosh, wait, we have forty <laughs> we seconds. Can't, we can't go no longer than forty. Oh, that's so good. All right, so uh, I've got exactly thirty seconds to wrap up. Um, man, that was so good. We didn't even plan that. That was, that was gold, Josh. That was amazing. That was gold. Well, um, these aren't all the questions we had, but they are some of them. Uh, we try to keep these to a digestible length for you. Hope that you have been encouraged. Maybe anytime you have any questions at all, you can always reach out to us. Uh, if you have a question specifically that you would like us to answer on one of these podcasts, you can shoot an email again to the story at kingscross.org. As always, if there's anything we can do to help you get connected in community, if there's a way that we might be able to come alongside you to help you grow in the gospel, if there is anything we can do to equip you to live on mission, we would love to come alongside you and do that. Just reach out and let us know. Otherwise, we hope that you have enjoyed this. We love you, and we'll see you next time. Love y'all. Go in peace. (laughs) 